Well, good morning. So for traditional purposes, we would call this Holy Week. Uh, as traditional Christianity has celebrated uh, under its patterns the, the Holy Week where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, and then we know that what is about to happen at the end of that week is going to alter all that will happen after it and affects that which was before. And that is his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, you need to understand that when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, he wasn't coming just to die. He was coming as part of Passover week, uh, which was a celebration and an acknowledgement over how God provided uh, protection to Israel and saving them from judgment while in Egypt. And then the escape afterwards being brought to the promised land. And all of that is a foreshadowing of actually what Jesus did. So it's not a mistake that Passover and the death, burial, and resurrection were together. And it just happens that on this year, uh, the Hebrew calendar and the traditional Christian calendar uh, fall together. And so this is also Passover week. And so there are many Hebrew people and Messianic Christians that are celebrating Passover this week. And we as Christians need to acknowledge that Passover points to Jesus. And so it's, it's a good thing to learn about Passover and to understand it because it helps us understand even more fully who Jesus was, who he was speaking to, and how we go forward. But we get to celebrate the resurrection as part of that. And so this week on Thursday night, uh, we will acknowledge all the things that happened in the pattern of that week on that evening, which was ultimately uh, the practice of the Passover meal and then communion, the washing of the feet, and then the command that Jesus gave, which is a new command I give you, is to love one another and that we're to be known by that love. And so that's why it's called Maundy Thursday, a new commandment. Uh, and so we will honor that on Thursday. And then Sunday, we are going to celebrate. We're celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if you are not aware, uh, our services are at 8, 9.30, and 11. And so if you are normally here for a 9 o'clock service, uh, then if you show up when you usually do at 9.05, you'll be on time for the second service. And, uh, and so, uh, but if you're coming for the 1050 service, then you'll, and you're usually here at 1055, you'll be here perfectly on time for the 11 o'clock service and, and so on. So again, 8, 9.30 and 11 uh, will be the service times this coming Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, so having said that, today we continue on through the passages found in the book of James. And James, if you understand anything about him and who he was, he was the brother of Jesus, but in particular, James was considered the first leader of the church. Even Peter appealed to him. While Peter was certainly the voice piece of the early church, it was James who they saw as kind of the leader and the first pope, if you will, kind of making sure the church is operating as it should, which is why this letter is the way it's written, is that unlike all the other Pauline letters or, or some of the apostles who were like John and Peter, where there's a lot of theology in it, James was concerned for the church's behavior. 
If he's going to lead this flock, uh, he wants to make sure that their behavior aligns up with the Savior that they worship. And so that's why the book of James is more often quoted than probably any other New Testament book because it's very applicable. It has a lot of very earthy, pithy sayings that can help us uh, align better with who God is. And so the first part of of James chapter 1 was about trials and how God uses trials to bring about uh, good things in our lives and maturity, but these last part of these verses from verse 19 to verse 27 is talking about the role of the word of God in our lives and how that affects the behavior of us as people of their followers of Jesus. So we're going to go there. So we're going to hand out Bibles now, uh, and we're going to go to the book of James, which is at the end of your scriptures. Uh, so if you find Revelation, go left. If you find Hebrews, go right, uh, and then you'll find the book of James. And we also utilize the version Bible app. If you download that app or you have that app, just go to the events tab and you'll find LEFC is one of the churches there. Just tap on that and you'll get all the scriptures that we'll be utilizing today. And uh, we primarily teach from out of NIV. There's multiple translations uh, that we would say are very valid and worthy to be used. Uh, we've just simply chosen NIV. Uh, Having said that, we're going to begin in verse 19 of James chapter 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word uh, and do what it, uh, and not, and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law, that that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, today's verses. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Okay, so in this text, we've already received multiple charges about deception. And it's talking about self-deception, not necessarily being deceived by the world, which can happen, but it's actually talking about how you can deceive yourself, which as we talked about last week, self-deception is where you can then align, convince yourself of something that is inaccurate through false understanding or false manipulations. And so we don't want to fall under self-deception. That's what James is saying. But the reality is, is as human beings, we like to make things in our image. We like to make things conform to our will. And so as a result, deception can happen very easily for any of us. And so we've already addressed two deceptions in the last few weeks that he spoke to. One of them is in verse 16, uh, where it says, we deceive ourselves then 
when our flesh, in the attempt to justify ourselves, redefines truth, and ultimately, by doing that, redefines God. Verse 16 talks about God, Jesus, and God. They do not change. Who they were thousands of years ago, they are now. The moral character that they had then and what they called as moral, that which is good and that which is sin, still is same today. That which is holy, that which is sin, is still defined similarly and same as it was all those years ago. So when we start seeing a shift and, and teachers from the Bible start saying that, no, that was for then, not for now. We've ultimately deceived ourselves. We've deceived ourselves. And by redefining that truth, we're redefining God. And God doesn't change. We do, and we need to, but God does not change. The second deception that is talked about is in verse 22, when it says that we should not merely listen to the word and deceive ourselves. There are people that will just simply listen to the word, they'll listen to the word, and then shut the Bible, and then walk out, and they don't give any consideration for what the word reveals to them and in them, and how to apply it. And that's deception, to think it's just sufficient to just hear it. No, the reality is if you're only hearing the word, you're not really gonna become convinced of the word. You're not gonna be convinced of its validity as being the authority in your life. And you're not gonna understand things as well unless you apply it. The word was not meant to be something just to be heard. It was meant to be something that was to be lived out through the lab of life. And then today, another deception comes in that James talks about. And he says, when he says in verse 26, he says, those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and the religion is worthless. So, he throws another deception that we commonly do, which is this, to take certain parts of our lives and bring it under the authority of something, and other parts, it doesn't matter. We just let it be as it always has been. So, let's understand something First, before we get into why he talks about good religion and worthless religion. So we don't use here at LAFC very often the term religion or being religious. We talk about a relationship with Jesus. All right, that's what we're about. And you need to understand that scripture also takes that approach. That's why we talk about relationship. That's why Jesus came, is to reconcile man to God, to create a family, the family of God, becoming heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Everything is relational in God's kingdom. It's not religious as what we would understand religion to be. So if James chooses to use that term here, which by the way, is the only time it's used in scripture, this idea of religion, this term that we get from the Greek word that says religion, that's the only time it happens, okay? So this is rare for scripture. But James drops it here, so we need to understand what he means. Is he talking about religion as we would use it, where it's simply identifying or labeling? So in other words, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, and choose whatever other religion you want to bring into it. And, and so that's... Typically, when we use the term religion, what we talk about. 
but by its pure definition. Religion is the outward expression of an inner work that reveals one's God. Okay? So let me say that again. Religion as defined here in the Greek is it's an outward expression of an inner work that reveals one's God. In other words, reveals one's belief about God. All right, so what this, how this plays out would be, if you think God, and there's, some, there's one of the major religions of the world that kind of teaches that God's more disconnected from man, and you're just basically not to tick God off. If that's your view of God, then the only thing you're gonna do about applying that religion is to make sure whatever you do, you're just not ticking God off. So that's the evidence of your religion. Because you believe God doesn't care typically about my daily life. I just need to not tick him off, all right? So, but if you believe that God just is a changing God, that he changes with the times, and that he evolves like we evolve, when I say that, evolve in understanding, just making sure we're clear here. I'm not gonna become a chimp on the stage. So, if we believe that, then we're going to start ascribing to God by the way we believe about him, that he's changing all the time, then you're going to start seeing that your religious understanding of how you practice your faith is going to change because God's changing, all right? So that's where a lot of teachers that claim to teach the word of God will start teaching a shifting moral code because God has shifted. He has changed or our understanding is always shifting and changing. We ascribe that same uh, temperament upon God. So our religion reflects that. But if your understanding of God is that he's holy, period, and he always is and has been holy, and that you're worshiping that holy God who despises sin, will not let sin into his presence, but that there is a payment for that sin of which he then paid for himself through his son Jesus. If you believe that and you understand him as holy and he despises your sin, but he can see you as holy because of Jesus' work upon you, then your behavior and your understanding of God's going to reflect exactly that. All right, so when we're talking in the term religion, it is revealing what you truly, truly, truly believe about God because that's gonna manifest by how you live. All right, so having said that, let me come back to the third deception. We deceive ourselves, it says in verse 26, when we think our religion is real, yet our mouths show no restraint. Okay, so if religion is the outward evidence of a true, but whatever you believe about God, so if you say, I have true faith in a holy God who desires my life to come under his authority, and that's what I say I believe, but the evidence of my life shows that there is a big part of you that is unrestrained, does not come under that authority, God says your religion is worthless. Ouch. 
Because wouldn't we say that many of us fail with our tongues? I think that's why James pokes at it. The tongue is one of the easiest places to fail. Tongue's also the evidence of what's going on inside of us. And so if we're gonna talk about tongue, which by the way, James chapter three, which is in like three or four weeks we're gonna teach that, goes into the tongue for 12 verses. And we've got an expert on the tongue, Jeff Travis, that's gonna speak on that in a few weeks. He has issues there, he's worked through it, he's applied it, so we figure we'll give him that text. So I'm not teaching that, um, he can deal with that. So today though, is where James drops it into the text for the first time and he connects the dots with saying that, listen, if the tongue, which is one of the first evidences of whatever, whatever is going on in your life, if it is uncontrolled, unrestrained, there's nothing different about the tongue in you as there would be to anybody else in the world, and yet you claim a religion, claim that there's something going on inside of you, and that your God is what you're declaring, you're sending mixed signals. And God calls you out and says your religion is worthless. And by the way, in the Greek, it means worthless. No value whatsoever. No value. In the study of this, I came across this quote by Barnes, and he says this, religion is designed to produce an effect on your whole conduct. And if there is any one thing in reference to which it does not bring us under control, that one thing may show that all the other appearances of piety are worthless. Okay? You understand where he just went there? He's saying that if you have a religious construct that you claim to behold and believe in, and there is one thing in your life that you do not subject under the authority of that God that you claim your religion holds to, then that one thing becomes so loud and so glaring that any other evidences of your religion becomes worthless. This is difficult word, right? And let's kind of test this out. So when I was growing up, I was very into sports to the deepest level, in particular football. I would study the statistics in like age eight and nine. I could tell you what a running back's average yards per carry would be in the NFL. I was aware of what quarterbacks were good and not and their statistics. I mean, it was sick how much I studied as an eight-year-old on the sport of football. And I remember one time seeing this coach who was coaching one of the football teams from Texas. All right, and he was coaching and this particular coach I had seen uh, in various contexts share his faith in Jesus and speak to people about how Jesus has changed his life 
and I'm watching this game, and, and, I, and I like when I knew anybody on that field that might be a follower of Jesus, because you're like rooting for them. And then I'm watching as the camera showed this coach being angry at something that happened with an official. And he's dropping words that I could read the lips. And it was words I was not allowed to say. And I remember being confused by this. This man declares Jesus has changed his life and had been telling people. And I'm looking, I'm like, I can't say those words. This doesn't line up. And I remember asking my dad. My dad's here in the service right now. And he may not remember the answer to my question. But when I asked, how in the world does this coach who says he's all about Jesus, but then says all these things that I can't say, how do you make sense of that? And my dad, probably not knowing how to answer in the moment, just said, well, he's from Texas. And I don't know if you remember dad saying that, but for the next several years, whenever I heard Christians using words I could not say, I would, I would just assume they must be from Texas. <laughs> so note to parents, you might think you're being funny, but you might actually set up a theology that's not exactly accurate, all right? So in the end of the day, the evidences confuse if they don't line up to the God you claim. And so when you have it, something that is that one thing as Barnes talks about, and it may not be the time, it could be a lot of other things. If it's so dominant in you, then how are anybody gonna see that which God is changing in you? It ends up invalidating your religion, the outward expression of what you claim to be. Now, as I'm saying here, that one thing doesn't have to be the tongue. It could be many things. But to the point, whatever your one thing is, if it is unrestrained and it is not coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it's not being rejuvenated by the Holy Spirit in you, and it continues to manifest and you don't care that it's manifesting, and you might even excuse it, you might even dismiss it as no big deal, small thing in the big pie, because I'm doing all these other things, Hear what God is saying to us today. Don't minimize it. You have no idea how much that one thing can create a confusing signal, not only to yourself about who God is, but to other people who are watching our lives. Continuing on in verse 27. Now he's gonna flip the script, okay? So if the person who doesn't show restraint with their tongues, their, their religion is worthless. Now he's gonna give the very valuable religion and what it looks like. So religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So he ultimately says this, Authentic religion is evidenced by care for others and reverence for God's holiness. That's summarizing it. Authentic religion, the real deal, the one that God says, now your religion, which again is just simply the term used for whatever's happening in here is happening out here. So it's the outward evidence of an inner work I will tell you, the one that I think is really truly allowing the inner work that I'm doing in them become real is the one that lets it manifest into their behaviors. 
And those behaviors that he highlights are, first of all, about care for other people, and second of all, about reverence for God's holiness. So let me break it down why I say that that statement summarizes verse 27. First of all, this idea about care. A person whose religion is pure and faultless is one who cares for, looks after, or in many of your translations, the word visits the, the widow and the orphan. Now, the reason why translations are kind of, and you'll find verse 27, there is a lot of different choices of the words here in the various translations. The word in the Greek about looking after or to visit uh, or to care for literally means to visit or to care for. The problem with using the translation uh, words of to visit is that if I knew of a person who is recently widowed and I went to visit them and I told you that, you're gonna immediately interpret from that that I went there, that I showed care, I acknowledged them, and then it ends, and then I walk away. Well, what it's meaning to convey in the Greek is that it's more like to look after, because if I tell you that actually this widow, instead of saying I went to visit the widow, and I told you, no, I'm looking after this widow, then it conveys the meaning of what this is giving, which is it's beyond just a visit. It's beyond just showing that you care. It's actually meeting their needs when they're in distress. So someone who is truly being changed by God and coming under his authority and lordship will show a, a desire and a compelling, and then action, because we talked about don't just hear it, we do it, that we actually become active in caring for people when they're in distress. And widows and orphans clearly have experienced distress. They, the widow has just lost the spouse they've been doing life with. The absence of that spouse is significant. And so the church is being called like God cares about people in that context. And we should look after them. And the orphan, they've lost their parents. Or in many cases, the parents have rejected them. So we need to look after them so that in their distress, they can see that God loves them. That's why I am proud to be a part of one of the ministries here at LAFC called Team 127, where we help families who are considering adoption uh, to coach them, to guide them in the process, and then guide them while they're in the midst of the adoption process, and then to help them in the parts after the adoption process, and to walk alongside of them and to care for them because the journey is challenging. We also get the privilege of helping them fundraise for that adoption. And I can tell you we've been a part of helping pay for 50 plus adoptions here at LEFC. Pretty exciting stuff. But it's not something to just be proud of for the sake of like, hey, look at us. No, it's like we feel compelled to do it. It's something that God stirred in our hearts. 
And we want to manifest it in the way that this is a way we can help the orphan uniquely here at LAFC. There's many ways to help an orphan, but we've chosen to go after adoption, to bring them into forever homes that they'll be taught in the ways of the Lord. Jesus, this is fascinating to me. You're probably, if you're biblically literate, you've known scriptures for a while. Remember the analogy when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. Familiar with that? So the context is, is that Jesus talks about a time when the flock that's mixed with true believers and those who are not real believers, all right? That they're gonna be together and at the end of time, there's gonna be a separation. The goats represent those who, you know, were not true believers and the sheep are those who are the true believers. And so, the Pharisees were very puzzled by the sheep and this goat's analogy. And so they're asking questions, but those who are wanting to follow after Jesus were leaning in. It's like, well, I wanna be a sheep. I don't wanna be a goat, right? And so then when asked, so how will you know what the sheep are and how do you know who the goats are? And Jesus gave this expression. He says, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. So even Jesus, with his own illustration about this idea, the evidence of true religion, a true faith, a true relationship with God, manifests with compassion. It just does. If somebody claims to be a follower of Jesus and they have no compassion and empathy to a person in distress or in need, you have to wonder, it's like, is God changing you? Is there true religion? Is there true work of the Holy Spirit inside? So James is not taking this aside and doing his own thing and going rogue. No, he's consistent with even what Jesus says. A true evidence of the Spirit of God working in you is compassion. Widows, orphans, somebody that's hungry or thirsty, that's when you know whatever work is going on inside you is beginning to manifest outside of you. The second part that Jesus says is a true and faithful person that, that genuinely has a good religion, that it's evidenced by them is when they are not polluted by the world, as it says in the NIV. And many of your translations, it'll say unstained or unspotted. So, James is saying by the direction of the Holy Spirit, okay, listen, somebody whose religion is absolutely true, that there's an inner work that's leading to outward evidence, you will see it by the fact that they do not buy into or let themselves come under the authority of the world. They let themselves come under the holiness and authority of God. So God approves and affirms those who pursue holiness as the standard of their life, not the standards of society. If you're starting to establish that the standards of society are more in line with who God is, you have to be into question who the teacher is that's saying that. Because everything I've seen about the holiness of God and how he defines holiness is very contrary to the standards of society. Because the standards of society is self-seeking. 
And anybody that I know that is truly coming under the transformation of God is others considering. God is greater. I am lesser. I am in need of God, and God made the effort happen on his own to save and redeem me. And as a result, my life is not about me. It is now about others. When that is how it's aligned, and that it's holiness of God is defined by God himself and not by me, then you can start to see who the people are that are truly under the authority of God's leadership. Now, in this text, to understand, I'm not a big fan of the translation of, the, of that Greek word there, unstained. Because to you and I, when we say something is stained, it's superficial, it's on the outside, all right? In the Greek, it either means unstained or unspotted. And spotted can kind of help you get there. So that's why I think in this case, NIV is saying being polluted by, because it goes deeper than the surface. Well, after all, we're talking about religion here, which is supposed to be the outward evidence of an inner work. So what is the best way to understand this idea of what James is saying that a person whose religion that God affirms as good and valuable is one who is not polluted by the world or unspotted or unstained, what is he saying? Well, here's where I get to the apple that some of you are wondering is why is it up here? So in this moment, I'll explain the apple. If you were to go to the grocery store or a farmer's market to, and you're gonna buy six apples, you're gonna go up to the apple uh, shelf and you're not just gonna pull six apples and put them in a bag. What are you gonna do? You're gonna look for spots. And why are you gonna look for spots? Because through experience you've learned that a small spot on an apple likely has a big rotten core to it. I mean, it is not fun to bite into an apple and all of a sudden you had missed a spot and you bite in and it's mushy and brown. Nobody likes that. So when you go to a stand, you're looking for the spotless apple because you don't want the rotten core. And if you buy apples that were really good and you didn't eat them quick enough, you start seeing spots. And you might still want that apple, so what do you do? You eat around the spot. You don't eat that spot, that, that area. Because you know where that spot is, it's revealing that there's something rotten underneath. Same thing. Same thing. In scripture, what he's saying here is, listen, the religion that God honors says is real deal is going to acknowledge that if they see spots, because we're letting the word of God be the mirror to our lives, as it said in verses 22 and 23 and 24, that we're letting the word of God reveal things in our lives. We're gonna see those spots and we're gonna like, oh man, that's revealing something deep about me. Then we're going to address it because we're coming under the authority of God and we know God is holy. And that spot is a spot of unholiness. And the word reflects that to us and we respond accordingly. So we want to be authentic in our faith, authentic in our religion. And I would say real in our relationship with God. So there are four takeaways that I, I grab out of this text that I wanna leave us with today. The first one is this. God is about the whole of us, not just what can be seen. So don't think that what James is teaching us here, that it's all about works, 
And that's all about your outer behaviors. No, no, no. It is not at all what he's saying. He is, God is about both the heart and the outer man. And the outer man is merely the evidence of the heart. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when talking about the choice of a leader, this is what God says. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God cares about the condition of who you really are. These outward evidences are meant to be mirror opportunities where, they, where we see it through the mirror and the lens of God is like, I have this one thing I need to work on in my life because it's not under the authority of God and I need to release it to him to do the work in my life. Number two, the outer expressions or evidences of our life reveal the true condition of that heart. That's what James is saying. This is just simply to help us understand that when we see these spots or blemishes or a lack of compassion or an unbridled tongue or that one thing that we're just letting be flippant and free but not under the authority of God, those are opportunities. When you look in the mirror of God's word, those are opportunities to say, God, here's an area of my life that I've not brought under your authority. Redeem it, Lord, and change it in me. Thirdly, the fruit of God working in you is revealed in compassion towards others who are struggling and are distressed. Not all of us have high gifts of mercy. Not all of us are the ones that wanna rush into every situation we get around. But there's always something that compassion can do through however God's wired you. We're not to just say, oh, I feel bad for that person. Now there's opportunities, especially in that relational world that God's placed you, where you are his hands and feet. You are his salt and light. And then as you speak into that relational world, your oikos, the Greek term for that, that as you do that, not only do you, does your, your faith grow in that moment, but so does the observation for other people and saying, you know what? Whoever your God is, is the real God. Lastly, the fruit of God working in you will cause you to be disgusted by the sin in your life. When we start minimizing sin as no big deal, or, you know, again, that coach probably would just say, yeah, it's on the football field. The game gets intense and those things just kind of happen. That's where we've just minimized sin in our lives. We've just dismissed it as no big deal. Not realizing that that very act of unbridledness clouds the perspective of your view of God and the view others have of God by watching your life. God is holy. And when sin rises up and we can see it in our lives, we shouldn't feel good about it. Now, let me be clear. This isn't about operating with disgust towards people when you see sin in their lives. This isn't that. I do grieve when I see people I'm very closely related to in friendship or in blood relationship. I get frustrated when I see sin is harming them. But I don't show my disgust to them and disgust about them. I reveal it's like, 
The sin in us is what we're disgusted by. God is holy. And when we see sin, we need to be realizing we need the holiness of God to go there and penetrate that area of my life. Whatever that one thing is for you. James cares about his church that he's the leader of in that time. And God cares about the church. And it was Jesus that says, I will build my church. And so Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to address these things in our lives. As the word of God planted in us reveals sin issues, then the, the spirit of God helps us then act upon it. Because without the help of the Holy Spirit, we probably would be an ultimate failure. So let's go to that God now and talk to him about these things. So Lord, Father in heaven, creator of heaven and earth, holy, just, faithful and true, without error, unchanging, committed and faithful to redeeming a people that you call your own, who were dead in their sins, had no hope for being able to make payment for what they've done wrong. You provided a way through your son, Jesus. Jesus, you said you're gonna build a people. You're gonna build a people that you'll bring to the Father. And you'll do that through your redemptive work that you did on the cross, of which we celebrate this week. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, would you give upon that belief, convict us of where that maybe there's that one thing that we've chosen to not give control over to God. Could be money, could be relationships, could be the tongue. Whatever that one thing is, Lord, that's creating a confusion about the trueness of their faith, that you will reveal it through the mirror of the word and then give them courage to act upon what the word reveals by the power of your Holy Spirit. Do a fresh work in our lives today, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Ask God to search our hearts. Let's prepare room for him.
So if you came into this room today without a relationship with Jesus, let me tell you, there is nothing you can do on your own effort to ever make your religion valuable. It just can't happen. It requires the work of God in you. He empowers us through his Holy Spirit and his word, the living word of God, to give us the power to be able to live out these things. It's when we reject the work of God in us that our religion begins to tank. And so this is a charge to both believer and non-believer. It says that the word of God will save you. That living word is Jesus Christ. We celebrate him this week. Again, services this coming Sunday, 8, 9, 30, and 11. Thursday night, we'll gather here to practice and participate in remembering all the things that happened on Thursday. But we do this because we cannot forget the work was accomplished by Jesus, not by me, not by you, not by any of us, because we couldn't. God can, so he did. And so for the one who came in here not believing, we would encourage you, to reach out to God and say, God, I yield. Change me through your son, Jesus. To the believer, say, God, I recognize this one thing in my life is creating a very distorted picture of you, not only to myself, but to others. And this one thing is standing in the way of me finding freedom in you. Confess it to the Lord. Yield to his power. Seek the help of the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And you'll see transformation begin. So with that word, I give you. If you would like to pray with someone, I'll be up front or there'll be people in the encounter room uh, after the service that would be glad to pray with you. We want to see victory come into your life and victory comes in the name of Jesus. And in that, I say, God bless let this, work be, this week be a, a daily preparation of celebration of the greatest story ever told. Amen.